I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on, and today we're gonna be in Acts chapter 17. Now, if you're not sure where Acts is located in the Bible, uh, here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're in a physical Bible, open up to the table of contents at the very beginning of the book. Uh, there you're gonna find that the Bible's actually broken up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Acts, the book we're in today, is the fifth book of the New Testament. So locate the New Testament, five books in is Acts, Go to that page and then flip through until you get to the big one seven, chapter 17. Now, if you're in an app, simply pull down the list of the books of the Bible and you'll find that Acts is just a little more than two thirds of the way down that list, Acts 17. Now, a, a few years ago, I got to go on a mission trip to the Virgin Islands. I know it was such a sacrifice, uh, but it was a great trip. Actually, we got to do a lot of ministry work there. There are a lot of lost people uh, in the Virgin Islands. and so. So it was an amazing opportunity to tell people about Jesus. But I'm gonna tell you something that kind of freaked me out. The, the, my trip to uh, the Virgin Islands was the first time that I experienced driving on the left side of the road. You know, here in America, we drive on the right side and our steering wheel is on the left. Uh, and so uh, in America, I've grown accustomed to driving, of course, in the right-hand lane. But in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, they drive in the left side of the road, but the steering wheel is still located in most cars on the left side also. And driving there is so different than it is driving here in the United States. There's pretty much no such thing as a straight road. Uh, you know, here in Phoenix, where we're located, uh, all the roads for the most part are straight. You can look down and see for, for miles down that road if there are no cars on it. But in St. Thomas and in the Virgin Islands, all of the roads twist and turn and go up and down. And the people of St. Thomas are so accustomed to driving on the left side of the road down these windy up and down roads that they just zip right through them. Some of the roads are super narrow and there's not much squeezing room, but they just fly through. Stop signs were much more of a suggestion <laughs> rather than something that you actually stopped at. And another thing is when you'd be driving along and you saw somebody that you know, you honked. Like in America, if someone honks at you, it's to tell you that you're doing something wrong. But in St. Thomas, when they honk, it's a friendly gesture. It's something that you do to say hi, or they don't use it to honk to let someone know that they're messing up in their driving. And when I was there, it got me thinking, what if I had to drive in St. Thomas? What would, it, what would it be like for me? I, I'll be honest, it would be really hard because I'm just so accustomed. I'm so used to driving on the right-hand side of the road that switching to the left, whew, that would be tough. That would be hard to get used to. I, I don't know that I could do it. But in... In preparing today's sermon, I read this great illustration. I think it ties in very well. What if, uh, let me build a hypothetical for you. What if I went to St. Thomas again and I rented a car and, and I decided that despite what the laws and the customs are of St. Thomas, I was gonna follow the laws and customs uh, of mainland United States. I was gonna follow the laws of how people drive in Phoenix. I, no matter what was going on in St. Thomas, I was gonna to continue to drive on the right-hand side. 
And I was gonna come to a full stop and I was gonna use my horn to let people know that they're messing up in the way that they drive. And, and I used my customs and my ideas of what should happen and I was gonna do it my way. What do you think would happen? Well, to be totally honest, I would either get pulled over, possibly arrested, and I would most definitely cause an accident. I might hurt somebody by the way I'm living, by the way I'm driving and not making adjustments to what I'm supposed to be doing based on that country's laws and customs. I could be a very dangerous person if I decided to do that. Imagine this, uh, one of the other cool things that happened in this, uh, this trip to, to St. Thomas is one of their residents, a, a person from St. Thomas, actually came and was a summer intern for us at the church I was working at. Um, and he commented about the driving and how odd it was to drive on the right-hand side and how we use our horns differently than they use them in St. Thomas and how there are so many straightaways and how People drive so slowly and cautiously and, and obey signs and things like that. What if he came over to the United States? What if he came to Phoenix and decided that he was gonna drive the way people drive in St. Thomas and not follow the laws and customs here in Phoenix? He would most certainly get pulled over, arrested, cause an accident, hurt somebody. It would be dangerous for him and for those around him. It's interesting because so many times in our life as a follower of Jesus, we tend to take our own views, the ways we think that things should run or the, the behaviors that we think we should exhibit or do, and we impose them on what God's word actually tells us to do. And as a result, spiritually, we can become a dangerous person we can do a lot of damage or cause a lot of hurt when we don't do the things that God's word actually tells us to do because we're doing things the way we think they should be done rather than following his word. We're continuing in this series called Church and Culture. And it's all about living as a follower of Jesus in a culture that may not like the followers of Jesus all that much. Uh, and last week, Pastor Josh introduced us to the idea of radical faith. He, he introduced us to this idea that as followers of Jesus, we must completely depend on Jesus for everything. Our strength comes from Jesus. Our righteousness comes from Jesus. Our forgiveness and, and our ability to follow Jesus actually comes from Jesus. He, he used the, the, the illustration that comes from the Bible about building a firm foundation. The idea that we, we build our house on the rock, not on the sand. And he talked about how our rock, our foundation is Jesus himself. And, and this is something that we should all latch onto, that our foundation should be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. But here's the crazy thing. The foundation that Jesus brings is not the type of foundation that we or the world would expect. And so here's where we're gonna take a look at our Bibles. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. 
And, and look at what happens here in verses one through nine. Now, Paul has been, Paul and his, uh, his, his fellow missionaries have been traveling around. They've been ministering. They've been establishing churches. And look at what happens in chapter 17. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Verse four, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse six, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, they let them rest and let them go. Now, this is interesting. The, the people who bring accusations against Paul, Silas, and Jason, this guy who had taken Paul and Silas into his house, the accusation is that they have taken and turned the world upside down. You see, when you think about it, kingdoms, are built on power. Uh, all of the greatest kingdoms of history were built through power, military power, government power, strategic power, monetary or economic power. You know, victories happen through conquest. When someone, when a, when a government goes to war, they use their, their power and, and, and things like that to bring conquest against someone else. They look to win and, and to make someone else the loser. It's through power and submission and, 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 and just sheer force. But Jesus's victory did not come through power. It didn't come through physical conquest or, or, or through having some kind of physical victory over someone else. Jesus's victory came through his own death. That's upside down. You see, no one builds a kingdom by dying for that kingdom. No, no great general won and became famous because they gave their life for everyone there. They gained power through having victory on the battlefield. But Jesus's power, Jesus's victory came because he willingly died on a cross. And of course, three days later, he rose from the grave. And that leads me to today's big idea. If you've ever listened to one of my messages, you know that I usually give a one simple statement that kind of summarizes the main point, the main drive of that week's message. And today's big idea is this. 
Jesus brings his right side up kingdom through upside down means. Let me say that because I kind of stumbled through it. Jesus brings his right side up kingdom through upside down means. Think about it for a second. Jesus, Jesus's call in our lives is very counter to what we would actually think makes sense. And God has done this all through scripture. Think about it. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, for example, let me, let me give you some examples from the Old Testament. You know, in, in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, there are two brothers, uh, Cain being the oldest and Abel being the youngest, and they both bring sacrifices to God. And whose sacrifice is accepted as being worthy? It's not the oldest brothers that you would expect. It's the younger brothers. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable rather than Cain's. God called Abraham, this great man of faith. If you were to go to any Jewish person, any Israelite, any practicing Jewish person, they would tell you that Abraham is their, their father, the father of their nation. They look at him as this great, powerful, spiritual leader. And yet Abraham, if you go and read the, the account of his life in Genesis from chapter 12 on, you're gonna find that Abraham did some terrible things. You know, at two different points, he lies to kings in order to protect himself and not lie in a good way. Like he, he just tells a bold-faced lie. You continue going. Um, Abraham uh, has a son named Isaac and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now Esau was actually the oldest of the two boys. They're twins. Uh, Esau's the oldest and Jacob is the youngest. But who does God specifically choose to be the channel by which he would grow the nation of Israel? He very clearly tells Rebekah, their father, their, their mother, he tells Rebekah, that the younger will be the ruler, not the older. That, that's counterintuitive to the way the world worked in that day and time. And fast forward even further, Jacob has several sons and the youngest of them uh, at the time was Joseph. Now later, there's another one that's born that's younger than Joseph, but, but Joseph comes along and he has this, this, this conflicting relationship with his brothers and he's sold into slavery. This is at the very end of the book of Genesis. He's sold into slavery and God rescues the entire nation of Israel, Jacob and his entire family and all their followers. He uses Joseph, a slave in the nation of Egypt to rescue the nation of Israel. Completely counterintuitive. You know, the, it would make sense instead to, to build Jacob up and provide for him miraculously through the situation that was going on. But God brought Jacob's family to Egypt through the means of Joseph, who was a slave. Fast forward even further, you go into the very next book of the Old Testament, the, the book of Exodus. God uses Moses to free his people from what has happened 400 years later, the people stayed in Egypt too long, quite frankly, and they become slaves in Egypt, just as Joseph had been a slave. 
And God uses Moses to free them from that slavery. Moses is God's instrument in that. And guess what? Moses was a murderer. In his younger days, he killed an Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Fast forward even further, you go into the book of Judges. Um, the book of Judges, we find uh, an account of this man named Gideon. And God, uh, at the time, God had brought judgment on the nation of Israel and he brought this foreign country to come in and oppress the Israelite people. And the Israelite people cry out for help and they say, God, bring somebody to save us from this. And you would expect God to bring some warrior, some great leader, but he chooses Gideon. And Gideon himself recognizes that he is the least in his family who is one of the least in the tribe of the smallest tribe in the nation of Israel. In other words, he's the least of the least of the least. God doesn't choose someone who's already got power or influence uh, or has gained victories. He chose a nobody, a nobody that at the moment was hiding from the people that he was going to later be sent to free the people of Israel from. Not only that, but Gideon goes on to doubt God time and time again, and God still uses him in a powerful and amazing way. We've looked at a lot of ways, a lot of examples of how Jesus brings his right side up kingdom through upside down means. And, but now I want to take a turn and look into the New Testament, what, what Jesus and the other apostles, his apostles, tell us about living an upside down life. Because if we're going to live in an upside down kingdom, uh, a right side up kingdom that's brought through upside down means, what are those upside down means that, that come from us, that, that the life that it kind of seems upside down that Jesus calls us to. And so let's take a minute and let's go through several Bible passages. Let me just say, if you're a note taker, you want to get your pen warmed up because I'm going to basically now let the Bible speak for itself. I'm going to give you uh, lots and lots of passages that give us commands about how we should live an upside down life for Jesus. Uh, and so here's the first passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, God doesn't choose the, the strong ones and the powerful ones. He literally uses us in our weakness to proclaim his kingdom. He uses us, he saves us at our lowest points. He can use anyone and everyone, no matter what their past or what baggage they have, what sins they've committed, what's, what hurt they've endured or caused. God uses everyone. That's an upside down concept, but it's a beautiful concept. Uh, what else does the Bible says? The Bible clearly tells us repeatedly that we're supposed to live in humility. Let me give you a couple of examples. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But catch this part. But in humility, 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, let each of you not look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, we're called to live a humble life, looking out for the interests of others before our own interests, looking out for the interests of God before our own interests, and live in humility. What else does the Bible say? It commands us to live quiet lives. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. To aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we have instructed you. The Bible's clear. We're called to live quiet lives, minding our own business. What else does the Bible say? It says to submit to the government. Uh, we've talked about this repeatedly, but let me, again, Romans 13, 1 says this, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 says this, but, but let me read you uh, Romans 13, 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's difficult. You know, that, that's hard for us as Americans to, to recognize that our call, our command, is to submit to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. What else does the Bible say about this upside-down life? It tells us to be willing to suffer. And even in the midst of suffering, even to those who cause our suffering, that we are to be ready to tell them about Jesus, the hope of Jesus that we have, but that we're to do that with gentleness and respect. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we're to be willing to suffer and defend, to, to, to defend our hope in Christ when we go through that suffering. So what else does the Bible say? The Bible is clear, repeatedly tells us to not complain, to not quarrel. Uh, here's an example, Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, we are light in, in the lives of people who live in darkness. And one of the ways that we're light is that we, we don't complain and we don't quarrel and we don't dispute one another and we don't grumble. That's hard. Uh, we live in a society that thrives on fighting and complaining and grumbling. But the upside-down life is not that. That's not what we're called to do. Okay, what else does the Bible say? It says that we are to forgive everyone for everything. 
Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Jesus has just given us the Lord's Prayer, and then he makes this comment about forgiveness after the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The idea is that God forgives you time and time again, over and over and over. And he calls us to do the same with those around us so that people can see the forgiveness of God by the way that we forgive them. Lastly, we live upside down by loving and praying for our enemies. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44. He says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Peter, uh, one of Jesus' apostles, goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. We're not called to hate our enemies or protest them or insult them or mock them. Our call as followers of Jesus is to love them, to pray for them, and to bless them. That is upside down. You know, we've talked about these commands, but the greatest example of Jesus bringing his right side up kingdom through upside down means is his own life, death, and resurrection. Think about it. Victory, as I mentioned before, victory comes through conquering. Uh, Victory comes through power, physical power. But Jesus came as a suffering servant. He gained victory through dying for us. He didn't come as a conquering political king. He came as a humble infant, as a carpenter, as a teacher, as someone who died to save us from our sins. He didn't conquer through power. He conquered through death. He conquered through dying for our sins. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus came. He he lived a perfect, sinless life. And even though he was innocent, he submitted. And he died on a cross to save you from your sins. That's how much love Jesus has for you. But it didn't end there. On the third day, he rose from the grave. He declares victory over sin and death because he died himself and rose from the grave. You see, we're no longer slaves to our sin because Jesus forgave us of our sins when he died on the cross. We don't have to be slaves or or held down by our baggage anymore. We don't have to live in pain because of the hurt that's been done to us. We don't have to live in shame for the things we've done to others. We can be free. We can be free of all of those things. The fact of the matter is, is that we are free and forgiven because Jesus didn't come and conquer a physical throne in a nation. He came and gave us victory and freedom because he died and rose again. That is upside down. It doesn't make sense, but he wants to free you. He wants to bring you freedom and forgiveness, mercy and grace. 
He wants to take away your sins. He wants to heal the hurt that you've endured. He, he wants to free you from the shame that you feel. He wants to free you of the, the baggage that holds you down. He wants to give that to you. And he can because he died and rose from the grave. And maybe you're here and maybe you don't know Jesus. But maybe you're recognizing that you are a sinner. You, you are bound to your sin. You are a slave to your sin. Your sin keeps a control over you of some kind. And maybe you're recognizing the need to be freed from that slavery to sin. Jesus wants to bring that to you. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've done hurt. Jesus wants to free you. He wants to begin the healing process in your life. Maybe you've got baggage that you've been carrying and you've been struggling with. Jesus wants to give you healing and freedom from that as well. And what he asks is that you believe in him, his perfect life, his teachings, that he died on, in, died on a cross to save you from your sins, that he was buried and that he rose from the grave, and that now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He asks that you believe in him and place your trust in him. And maybe you're listening and maybe you've got questions. Maybe there's a, a churning that's deep inside of you. Maybe you're feeling that sin or that hurt or that shame, whatever it may be, and you want freedom. Let us help you with that. If that's you, if you want to know Jesus, or maybe you've just got questions, you want to know more about Jesus. Maybe you're ready to make a decision. I don't know, but maybe God's doing something inside of you and you need to talk to somebody or you want to know more about this. Please reach out to us. In, in the post of this video, in the, the, there's a link to our website, to the contact us page of our website. I want you to go to that and go down to the post, click on that link, go to our website, to the contact us page, fill out that form, and I will reach out to you as soon as possible. I would love the opportunity to answer any questions that you have about following Jesus, believing in him, trusting in him. So please reach out to us. Let us know what questions you have. Let us know what decisions that you feel God may be leading you to make. But please know that Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you to save you, to rescue you from your sins. And he wants you to believe in him and trust in him. Reach out to us, and I would be glad to explain this in more depth. But what about the rest of us? What is the response that this upside-down life is calling us to? What upside-down changes is Jesus trying to call us to make in our lives? You know, as I said, some of you listening, maybe you need to go to the contact us page and maybe you've got questions about Jesus or maybe you're ready to make a decision about Jesus. Do that now. But maybe for some of you, some of this is challenging you. Maybe you're rethinking things. Maybe you're realizing that rather than protesting or, or being afraid or complaining or quarreling or living in your own strength or depending on your own means uh, or living in unforgiveness, maybe you're recognizing that God is calling you to live in humility, in quietness, in love and forgiveness. Maybe he's calling you and you're recognizing that you're needing to live out the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. 
I don't know what God's calling you to do, but, but what is that, that challenge in your life? What are you struggling with when it comes, down, comes to this upside-down life? These upside-down means that brings God's right-side-up kingdom. What is he calling you to do? What counterintuitive ways is Jesus challenging you to live out in your life? Let's go to the Lord and let's ask him what it is that he's calling you to do. Join me now in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much for today. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you're calling us to do, what kind of upside-down life you're calling us to live. Lord, challenge us, shape us, mold us, transform us to be more like you. Help us to not be satisfied with the way that we have been living, but instead to transform our lives as Romans 12, 2 commands us to, to transform our lives to look more like yours. Even though it doesn't make sense sometimes to live the life that you've clearly commanded us to live. We thank you, Lord. Help us to have the strength and the courage to submit to the change that you're calling us to in our lives. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in the name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.